I am very excited about today. Are you excited? Here's why I'm excited. I read the chapter, okay? I don't know if you did. If you did, you'd be very excited. Somebody's saying, I did. Um, There's a scene in heaven. There's a scene on earth. We're going to stay in heaven most of the time. Isn't that a better place to be? Look at verse 1. John the apostle says, I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. That's Jesus Christ. And with him were 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. That's very important. If you haven't been here, way back in chapter 7, we see this people group, the 144,000. Now, look, they're not traveling around as a unit, like, oh, there's the 144,000. They have been selected and marked by God in contrast to what we saw last week, the people who were marked by the Antichrist, who have taken the number of his name on their forehead or on their arm. They are, John says in chapter 7, of Israel. And then for redundancy, he gives us the tribe, 12,000 of the tribe of Dan, 12,000 of Asher. Some people like to say, no, these are the church, and they take everything in reference to Israel and say it's the church. No, God's smart enough that when he has John write Israel, it's Israel. And because we're not smart, there's the redundancy, okay? So these are Jewish evangelists that we're looking at, but now they're on the other side, they're in heaven. Now he gives us some imagery here in verse 2. I heard a sound from heaven like the voice of many waters and the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders. This is a familiar scene in heaven in Revelation. But no one can learn this song except the 144,000. These are the ones, John says, who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins, and they're the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, taken out of earth, being the firstfruits of God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, no deceit, for they are without fault before God's throne. Verses 6 through 12 is the scene on earth. We'll skip that. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write. Evidently, John's kind of caught up in all this. He's nudged. Come on, John, you're supposed to be writing the book of Revelation. Write. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Uh, When we started Revelation, I told you there's a blessing, right, to read this book. There's seven blessings, seven beatitudes. Chapter one was blessed who reads and hears and lives out these words, right? It's taking us all these chapters to get to the second one. Blessed are they who die in the Lord from now on, says the Spirit, for they would rest from their labors and their works follow them. So we are smack in the middle of the book of Revelation. If you're a Bible student, if you actually read Revelation, we are smack in the middle of a period called the Great Tribulation. This is a seven-year period that will end life on earth as we know it. It's not an esoteric time. It's one of the most documented times in all of Scripture. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th week. It's a time, time and a half a time. It's Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus said concerning this time, when he was asked by the disciples, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? He said, there will be great tribulation, not run-of-the-mill tribulation, not persecution like the early church had or some people in parts of the world today have, not run-of-the-mill trials you're going through and I'm going through. Jesus said there would be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, these are strong words, ever shall be. 
And I'm going to make the argument this time has never happened. Jesus said if it had, no flesh would survive. This is the time where God's pouring out his wrath on mankind. We've gone through a lot of that. It's also a time where Satan's losing his mind, right? He's been cast out of heaven. There's the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, this unholy trinity, right? Pardon my pun here, but all hell is breaking loose, right? This is the worst time to be alive on the planet. Now, I have to make a confession. If you're a Bible teacher and you teach Revelation, if you read Revelation, uh, you start to break down in these chapters. You really do. This is tough sledding. Uh, It's the Antichrist, it's the devil, it's plagues, it's death, it's blood, it's violence. And I know it's getting all you. Because you come up to me after church and you're like, Pastor Bob, that was great today. Uh, You did a really good job with that chapter. That's kind of code for when are we getting out of this depressing stuff and getting to things like love and grace and sex and some other things that we want to hear about, right? And, And I have to admit, we are in some tough sledding. So I do what I always do. I feel like Moses, right? I go to God and I say the people are complaining. And what am I going to do, God? You wrote this. It's in the Bible. It must be here for a reason. And then, voila, God spoke to me this week. Uh, Speaks to me every week, but he really spoke to me this week. Whenever God really speaks to me, it comes in threes. I don't know why. I used to think it was hard-headed, and then I thought, well, three's a biblical number, so maybe that's what he's doing. I don't know. But here are my three signs. Uh, After service last week, a friend of mine who gives me books. And this is the only man who buys me books I actually read and like. I don't know. He has a gift. And so he gave me a book called Die Empty. And and remember last week, the clocks moved ahead, and it was rainy like it's every Sunday, and it's cold, and we're in Revelation, and we're talking about the Antichrist, and he gives me a book on death. I'm like, great. That's all. That's really what I need. Uh, It's written by Todd Henry called Unleash Your Best Every Day. And it sounds like a self-help book. It's really not. The author's challenge here is that sometimes in life you can do what you're called to do and because you've had success you can reach mediocrity. And his challenge is to die empty, to leave nothing on the table, to take all the gifts that are inside of you and live them out to their fullest. And so I read this on my way to New York City and I was kind of pumped up in my spirit again. I thought, well, God, you met me where I, where I am. Then a second thing happened that was really cool. I went to a prayer meeting with a bunch of friends on Tuesday night in New York And we went to a restaurant, and we're coming out of a restaurant, and right in the middle of the street, there's this little, small church with a marquee. Unbelievable. And I took a picture of it. We'll put it up on the screen with my iPhone. The text was Revelation 14, verse 7. And I said to everyone in my company, look, that's a sign from God. That's my text this week. And I've never seen Revelation on any marquee or anything, and they're looking at me like, "Uh, okay, that sounds interesting. And then the third thing that happened to me is I looked at my old notes. Now, sometimes I look at my old notes and I'm like, who was this guy? This is terrible. And then sometimes I look at my notes like, this guy was pretty awesome. And I looked at my notes and a flood of memories came back. Because I remember the events 11 years ago when I was studying this text. Greg Laurie, who pastors Harvest Christian Fellowship in California, is a Calvary guy, leads Harvest Crusades and all that. His son, Christopher, died in a car crash that Thursday. And I don't think the internet was new, but I think it was slow back then, and we tried to follow the events that were going on. I remember being so proud of Greg because he was at his church that Sunday. Now, if he hadn't been, that would have been okay, but he was there. And he got up and he said, you know, a lot of you thought I wouldn't be here today. He said, but I'm here because I want to let you know where else would I be? 
This is the community of faith, hope, and love that we've built. And this is where we rejoice with one another and we weep with one another. Where else would I be? I still remember his message that weekend. It was called, I Still Believe. And and I was so proud of Greg for this because he was willing to stand up publicly and say, the events of my life, good and bad, are not the arbiter if God is a God of grace and love and justice. The scriptures are. It's very important. You are valuable to God and so am I, but your individual life is not the arbiter of God's goodness and his justice. The scriptures are. And the cross is. And that's why we celebrated Easter and that's why we sing. I preached that week with an ache in my heart. Any parent, the idea of losing a child is terrible. But simultaneously, I had this joy in my heart because I read this beatitude. And for people that never read Revelation, it's a crime. Blessed are they that die in the Lord. Now, you know the beatitudes are kind of upside down, right? Jesus taught this, you know, blessed are the poor. They're going to be rich. Blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. It's, It's the upside down kingdom. And here, death is turned on its head that it's the dead who are actually blessed. Blessed means to be envied. When was the last time you went to a funeral and you're like, man, I'm really jealous of that guy. He beat me there, man. I'm really upset. You go home and complain to your wife. I wish it was me instead of him. Now listen, God wants us to live, right? He's given you breath and life and you should live it to its fullest. But what John's talking about here is the state of eternal blessedness. When I studied 11 years ago, I, I remember my thoughts. I thought of Christopher, his, Greg's son, who I've met. I said, what was Christopher's first five minutes in eternity like? You ever think about that? Should. The Bible says we're supposed to think of heavenly things, not things just of the earth. It's your final destination. It's going to be like going to an airport one day where instead of Buffalo or Miami, it's going to say Heaven. What's it going to be like? First five minutes. Now, we've had a little bit of experience with this. We just can't remember. Do you know the first five minutes you came out of the womb was over the top? You just don't remember? You're in this womb gestating. It's warm. It's comfortable. You're fed. Uh, most of us, by the way, would have stayed there, be honest, because it's comfortable. But you burst forth into a world where you could breathe and feel and touch and see. And, and all the things you do now were, were all beginning for you. That's what heaven's going to be like. Uh, What about the first day of school? Probably a bad example because it was traumatic for some of us. First day at a sports event, a concert, Disney World, Uh, your first kiss. We can go on and on. What are the first five minutes going to be like? Now, it's all speculation. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It hasn't entered the mind of man, the things that God has planned for us. But John gives us a little picture here of what eternal blessedness looks like, of what it means to be blessed when we go to the other side. And the first thing I think John tells us is that these people are alive. And you might go like, duh, yeah, they're alive, but think about it. The greatest question in all human history is, is there life after death? And the answer is yes. And I told you before, I could prove it to you outside of the Bible. And I've preached on this many times. I can pre, pre, uh, prove it in the Bible. But this is one of the great proofs. John has seen these people on earth persecuted. Now he sees them standing around the throne. 
And when I say alive, I'm talking fully alive, fully present. Uh, think of a time where you felt fully alive. I remember when my son was born. Uh, I already had a girl. That was amazing. But for, for a man to have a son, I remember feeling fully alive. I remember when it was announced I was going to start in college on the basketball team, fully alive. Uh, you fall in love. You're fully alive. You're going to be more alive than you've ever been. Free of the weight of the past, free of sin, free of the world, all the things that ensnare us. Verse 3 says they sung a new song that no one knew except the ones that sang. Now, I know some of you, this is where you kind of get derailed. You're thinking, geez, I knew it was going to come to this. Yeah, I'm going to live forever, but I'm going to be in one endless church service for the rest of my life. No, you're just going to be at a grand celebration when you get there. And then you'll go out and do other things like fly around to the planets or whatever we're going to do. But we are going to sing. And the thing I like about singing is you only sing when you're happy. If you sing in the shower, it's only because you're happy. And we sing at birthdays and we sing at weddings. We only sing at joyful times. Which perplexes me sometimes when I see people in a worship service. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not beating the sheep. I'm just perplexed. Because I, I, for 25 years, I walk into a church. I don't care if it's hymns, spirituals, black church, white church, Korean church. I've been in church where I don't even know the language that I'm singing. Which, you should hear that. Um, I don't know what it is. There's just something in me. So I met Todd Carmarkey this week in New York City. He's going to be a sizzling summer speaker. We'll be giving you that lineup soon. Uh, you might be interested in Todd. He produced Elf and Sully, and he's written several nonfiction books. He's in love with Jesus, sits in coffee shops in New York and tells people about God all week. He's an amazing man. And um, he shared how it was in a worship time, not teaching, where God spoke to him. And he said, Pastor Bob, I love the worship. He said, I was singing one day, and God said, Todd, empty the garbage can. He said, you know, I'm an itinerant guy, I write screenplays and scripts and fiction and um, I had like nine projects going. I was a little frustrated, and God said, empty the garbage can. Get rid of all your projects. And he wrestled with God, and that night, he just ended all his projects. That Tuesday, Steven Spielberg's assistant called and said, hey, Todd, we think we got a project for you. There's a guy who had a heart transplant, and he's the first guy with a transplant to play professional football. Do you want to write the story? So Todd gets into this guy's life, and the story, the guy gets a new heart. The rest of the story, he gets another new heart, which isn't a flesh heart. You know where this is going. And then I can't tell you any more of the story. You've got to come the sizzling summer, and you'll hear that story. It's going to be remarkable. What's my point? God speaks through many different things. And this company of the redeemed, as they sing, I locked onto this this week. How did this group, who lived through the worst time in history, these seven years, a time of complete sorrow, a time of Jacob's trouble, how did their sorrow turn to singing? How did they get from a place where they were sorrowful to where they sing? And I think it's important because that's what we have to discover in life. Jesus was right. We're going to face tribulation. Man was born from trouble, Proverbs says, as surely as sparks fly upwards. You and I, through the seasons of life, are going to experience trouble. How do we go from sorrow to singing? 
How do we draw from the wells of salvation? How do we make melody in our heart? And I think what God shared with me this week is the reason these people can sing is they have a testimony. You go back to Revelation 20, uh, chapter 4, where we saw the first rapture group, the Gentile church. What are they doing? Singing. Now, we know that song because we're going to sing it. Remember back in Revelation 4? Uh, you are worthy to take the scroll and unloose its seals because you have redeemed us to God by your blood. I know I'm going to be there. I'm going to sing that. Well, we have a little warm-up. We sing that song on Sunday mornings. The reason we can sing it is it's true. We have been redeemed. It's the song of the redeemed. This group is singing a song only they know. You can only sing when you have a testimony. You only have a testimony if you've been tested. You see, there's a brand of Christianity that's saying you're a Christian, you're a king's kid, you'll never go through a trial. You'll never experience tribulation in this world. And if you do, it's the devil. Or you can create your own reality. Sells a lot of books, fills a lot of churches. It's not true. You only have a testimony if you've been tested. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. James says, blessed is the man who, when he's tempted, and by the way, that's the same word for tested, tempting and testing. It's two sides of the same coin. When he endures, he will receive the crown of life. Uh, anybody over 50 will remember this. They're used to on TV, uh, right in the middle of a program, there was this weird, god-awful picture, and you'd hear this sound. Eee! Anybody remember that? Uh, this is an emergency, right? If this were an actual emergency, this is the National Broadcasting Association, if this were an actual emergency, we tell you where to go. Like if we were getting nuked, you go to the fallout shelter, which was like a basement in the bank, like that was really going to help, right? <laughs> and, but they would always say this, this is a test, it's only a test of the emergency broadcasting network, right? That, that's what the Bible basically says. This is a test, it's only a test. Now Satan wants to destroy you, he means it for evil, God means it for good. Greg Laurie had a test. I had a friend one time whose son was in a car accident. He was on life support. I said, Joe, you're in hot water. He goes, Bob, I'm in boiling water. Greg Laurie was in boiling water. He was in a test. Satan wanted to wipe him out. God was working through it. The 144,000 were tested. That's why they have a song. You only have a testimony if you've been tested. The reason why Jamie's having a one-man show is he's been tested. And he's come through the other side. That's why he can sing. That's why we sing on Sunday mornings. Now, I look at this group. They're in the state of eternal blessedness. They're singing. They have a testimony. But look at what verse 4 says. These were the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, I don't know if they are virgins, if, if that's literal, like in a sexual idea. I know what it's speaking of. It's speaking of purity. Now, purity is popular today, right? It's not popular in the sexual world, in the food world, right? Like eating organic and farm the table, so millennials spend twice what we did on food and they complain they're broke, right? They have to go to Dave Ramsey because they're buying like $9 eggs, right? <laughs> Supposedly, it's healthier, right? Uh, we're already living to like 90. How much more healthier do we want to be? But the idea is we love purity, except in this realm, the sexual realm. Then it's like, oh, do whatever you want. 
These were pure. Let's forget sexual purity, but these, they stood in the throne of God. They were pure. They lived through the worst time in human history, and they were pure. Now, I'll have young guys come up to me and say, Pastor Bob, you don't know what it's like to be 21. You don't know what it's like, and they'll give me all that's going on. I said, well, let's slow down for a second. I was 21. I said, you don't know what it's like to be 56. Wait till you get to 56 and see what you're going to be struggling with. (laughs) I was 21. I was on a college campus. I'm just like you. Pastor Bob, you don't know what it's like in the military. You don't know what it's like to be in a city. You don't know. Daniel was 16 years old, taking the Babylon. Foreign language, foreign king. He could have done anything he wanted. He had everything at his fingertips nobody would have ever known. Except Daniel knew God would know. Dan was offered all, Daniel was offered all the delicacies of the king's table, and he refused. How did Daniel stay pure? Same way we all stay pure. Values. We live by values. We don't fly by the seat of our pants. We fly by values. We have a deep conviction that God can be trusted. We have a deep conviction that God communes to us through his word. We have a deep conviction that God says what he means and means what he says. We have a deep conviction that what God says is good for us. That God's not withholding from us. He's empowering us. Daniel refused the delicacies. He ate kosher. He kept Sabbath. When it was announced if anyone bows down or doesn't bow down, that they will be killed to the the king's image, Daniel went home, opened his windows, and faced Jerusalem, and the Bible says, as was his custom from early days. Daniel didn't wait until he was in boiling water to pray, like, let me throw one north, I got in trouble. Daniel had a habit of seeking God in good times and bad. And so we live by values. My kids have gone off to South Africa and other cities and different places, and so have a lot of other of our teens, and I always tell them the same thing. Find a church. Find a place where you can get fed and fed. Find a place where you get fed spiritually, and then you'll meet a family there, and they'll feed you physically. You need both, okay? And tongue-in-cheek, what I mean is you need to be around other families. You know, when we were raising our kids, we had singles and people that were divorced, and all kinds of people in our house because those people need family. Uh, find a small group. Find a group of guys you can be intimate with. Don't be a lone ranger. Don't be isolated. Jonathan Evans, Tony Evans' son, played for the Dallas Cowboys. And when he did our retreat one year, I sat down and I said, man, how in the world did you make it through an NFL locker room? Like, how did you keep your convictions? And he said, oh, man, I was vocal. I told people about Christ right in the middle of the locker room. I'm like, how did you do it? He goes, well, I looked at it this way. They were vocal about what they were doing. They were talking about their exploits sexually and drinking. He said, I thought I'd just talk about mine. Wow. That's a man of value. That's a man of conviction. Purity matters. We've been talking a lot about the devil lately. Chapter 12, 13, he's kicked out of heaven and all this demonic activity and if you went into work tomorrow and you told someone you're a Christian, they're like, oh, that's glad that's working for you. They think you're like upstanding and think well of you. Tell them you believe in a literal devil and see where the conversation goes. There's a line from a movie, The Usual Suspects, 
where the actor says the greatest trick the devil's ever pulled on the human race is to convince the world he doesn't exist. The Bible says we should be aware of Satan's schemes. You know what that means? See, there, there, I coach basketball, so I know something about practice. Remember Allen Iverson? Practice, made practice famous, right? So do you know there's guys that are great practice players? They really are. They're just great at practice. And the reason why they're great at practice and not at the games is because practice is pretty defined, right? You play the same guys. You can kind of go through the plays. It's pretty mundane. Everybody knows how practice works. The problem with a game is there's another coach scheming against you. He's watched all the film. Satan is scheming against you. He's watched all the film of your life. He knows the chinks in your armor. That's why the Bible says the sin that so easily besets us. We are all prone to something. Some of you are prone to the flesh. Some of you are prone to the world. Some of you are prone to the lies of the enemy. We're all prone to something. And that's why we're told to beware of the devil's schemes. But the greatest trick he has is that you don't even think he exists. So our modern world looks at this and they think the idea of a devil is ridiculous. And then guess what happens? Every time we see a terrorist attack like we just saw in New Zealand, what's the one uniform thing that happens through every one of these? Surprise. How in the world did this ever happen? How did it ever happen? The history of the world is murder, deceit, lies, wars, killing, lying, greed. How did it happen? How does it not happen? Why are we so surprised? There is an evil one. Lurking. In Job chapter 1, the Lord says, does Job, does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you put a hedge about his household and everything he has? You've blessed his hands, his flocks, his herds, and all of his land. But if you stretch your hand and strike everything he has, he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power but on the man, don't lay a finger. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan slanders the human race here to God and says, oh, wait a second. Nobody serves you because you're God. Nobody wants to be in relationship with you because they're good and you're the creator. You've given them everything. Of course they serve you. They're blessed. They're protected, right? Kind of like that theology we talked about a few minutes ago. Satan says, once you remove all that, they'll curse you to your face. And God allows it, right? Question for God. God allows it. But God's in control. Don't touch his person. And you know the trials of Job. Job, you know, his friends, you know, they're mad at him. His wife says, curse God and die. She's gone. He loses all his kids, all his property. He's got boils on his skin. He goes through trials many of us would not last through. And in chapter 23, he says, but he, God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I'll come through. The fire is pure gold. Can you imagine saying this? Job looked around. He heard all the voices saying he must have done something wrong, that God is this and God is that. And Job said, time out. Whatever's going on, I know this. God knows what's going on, and I don't. That's what I know. And what Job figured out is, for what I know of God, this can only be a test. 
It's only a test. And when Job comes through and he says, I know now that my Redeemer lives and on the last day I'll see him, he believed in resurrection. He said, I've heard of you through the hearing of the ear and now I see you face to face. He had a profound understanding of God by the end and Satan was dead wrong about the human race. He was dead wrong about Job. God allowed it to bring that forth in the mind of Job and the book of Job to millions has been our confidence that God is in the midst of our suffering. And God turns the tables on Job excuse me, on Satan and condemns evil for all time. So it's only a test. The next thing says, these are the ones who follow the lamb, verse four, wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among men being the first fruits of God to the lamb. I thought about that. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Isn't that Christianity? We follow the lamb wherever he goes. When I was 22, I had to make a major decision. I had two offers to play professional basketball overseas, one in Germany and one in France. And then our church lost its youth pastor. I was only a Christian for about two years. And I uh, went in for, applied for, whatever, the youth pastor position and there were three people way more qualified ahead of me, and I got the position. I hit a crossroads. I loved basketball. I loved God. Um, had passion, desire, and dreams, and I chose youth ministry. Now, I fully believe God would have blessed the other route. I really do. But here's what I want to say to you. If you want to die empty, if you want to lay it all out before you die, Passion, dreams, and desire will never get you where you want to go. The reason I know is I know people that had passion, dream, and desires, and they never acted on them. Never saw anything come to pass. Got bogged down in the affairs of life and watched those things dissipate. If you want to die empty, understand this. Your direction is what will ultimately determine your destiny. It's your direction, not your passion. It's your direction that's going to determine your destiny. The road less traveled. God's going to bring you to places where you're going to have to make these type of decisions. The men and women of Hebrews 11 did this, right? You know, faith was the substance of things hoped for, was the evidence of things not seen. By it, they obtained a good report. By faith, Enoch. By faith, all these men, right? You know, by faith, Noah built an ark. When it had never rained, Moses turned away from being Pharaoh's daughter. The list goes on and on. And you come to these crossroads where you have to make a decision. And it's not always based on money or more power or prestige or comfort. God brings you to these places where direction determines your destiny because you're following the Lamb. And you following Jesus and me following Jesus, two different things. Some people, God wants playing professional basketball. Some people, he wants in the ministry. Some people he wants in the tech world. Some people he wants in ministry. But you have to follow him and the path that he has. Verse 5 says, and there was no deceit found in their mouth. No guile. James says, if you can bridle your tongue, you become a perfect man. If you skip down to verse 13, it says, they have rest from their labors. And this is strange. Their works follow them. You know the Bible has a lot to say about rewards, and it's very clear. The Bible has a lot to say about the time, talent, and money on earth that you used 
will determine future rewards in heaven. Uh, everybody likes to read Matthew 24 because it talks about the end of the world. But then nobody reads Matthew 25 where it says, when he comes at the second coming, he'll put the sheep on one side and the goat on the other, and he'll say to the sheep, enter in now to the blessedness of my father, because when I was sick, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was, had no clothes, you clothed me, etc." right? And they're all going to say, well, whoa, well, when did we ever do this? And he said, well, you did it to the least of these, my brethren. And he's going to turn to the goats and say, now, you never did these things because you never did it to the least of these. You never acted on opportunity I give you on earth. The Bible has a lot to say with rewards. And these people, their rewards followed them. These are the crowns we're going to cast at his feet. It says they're going to rest, not, not sitting around playing harps. It's kind of a rest from peace and worry and fear. The thing I like about this scene more than anything is there's 144,000 there. Uh, if John saw 139,999, I'd be prone to think I was the one that was missing. I was the one that wasn't good enough. I didn't make it, right? It's a wonderful verse that says God has a way of preserving his. They were marked, remember? Just like the Antichrist's going to mark, God's going to mark. By the way, you've been marked, Right? Romans 6 says, if you're in Christ, you've been baptized, you're a new creation, you've been sealed with the Spirit, you're marked by God. He knows where you are. Only God knows where the 144,000 are. They're all interspersed. He knows his own, and he brings them to an expected place where there's not only no condemnation, there's no separation. Now, we got to talk about the blessedness of eternity the blessedness of experiencing God, the first five minutes of heaven. And I wish I could stand here and say, everyone's going to experience this. Every human being. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, John goes on to give us the state of eternal condemnation. If you piece together the rest of Revelation, John tells us what the first five minutes apart from God, will look like. It's not a pretty picture. We often call this place hell. Uh, you'll find out here that hell was reserved for the devil and his angels. By the way, Satan's never been there yet. I know that was a surprise to some of you last week or several weeks ago. Some people think hell is a big party, right? We're going to party, we're going to have Miller Lite and watch sports and all that. Again, it's all speculation, but I like what one author said. Everything that makes community possible, humility, servanthood, kindness, love, and honesty will not exist in this place. These are all the gifts of God, and to reject God is to reject everything that makes community possible. John's picture of hell is the mirror opposite. It's an image of a desolate city just after the explosion of a spiritual nuclear bomb, the end of all community. Jesus said there'd be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The end of all community. The end of all goodness. The end of all love. The end of all grace. Blessed are those who are pure. They will see God. This is the end of it all. The good news is we live in an age of grace. If you read Peter's sermon in Acts, he talks about the moon turning the blood, the sun going out, the events we see in Revelation. He said, but whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Whether you live in this age or that age, it's not how good you were. It's not what church you went to. 
Were you willing to call on the name of the Lord and bow the knee to Jesus Christ? The difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches from your head to your heart. It says here, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. The goal is to die empty. The goal is when you die, you laid it all on the table and live for Jesus. Sad truth is, some will die empty. Never feel the fullness of why they were ever created. If you're in that latter category, you're one prayer away. Maybe you've been sitting here for weeks and weeks and never put this together, that there is a loving God through Jesus Christ, through one prayer, through conviction of your heart, with the confession of your mouth. Romans says, with the tongue we make confession of salvation, but through the heart we believe that you can be saved that you one day can pass from death to life and be part of this redeemed community and experience the blessedness of an eternal reality that is going to be so rich and so rewarding. And the thing I love is, is though we're on the narrow road, it's getting wider. At least it is for me. The closer I get, the more I can see it, the more I can taste it. God has saved the best for last. And one day we're going to be in the presence of God and it's going to be glorious. Are all the things of Revelation going to happen? Absolutely. Israel's been conquered and reconquered 18 times. They've been invaded 40 times. They've never seen these days. They're still coming. Will we see it? I don't know. But I think there's something greater. Blessed is he who dies in the Lord. In a twinkling, in a moment of eye, we shall be changed. And we don't weep as those without God. We weep with this great reality.